right to the wire. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we all know the concept of a poster child. A poster child is the face that is put to a particular um, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. Oh, don't worry about that, Suzanne. She'll be fine. Is it a she or a he? She? It's a he. It's a she. No, she. I didn't mean Gail. I meant the, the dog. She'll be fine. Um, so is it a representation of you know, whatever? You know, you see someone's face. Like I, I was saying, I was racking my brains to think, you know, what, who is the, what would I think of, uh, you know, and, and, you know, publicly lately, it's usually political figures or maybe a movie star. It's associated with something or someone like a, like a Hitler. You see the picture of Hitler, you think Nazis or whatever. Well, uh, God holds up his own poster child, and that poster child is represented uh, multiple places throughout the scripture. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a man, it's a he, and he is the epitome or the pinnacle of evil uh, in a person. And so, really, it's not so much that he's the, the pinnacle of, like, a whole bunch of sin, which he is. It's his title is man of sin. But it's rebellion. He's the pinnacle of rebellion from which sin comes. So when we rebelled against God's command and we ate of the fruit, sin occurred and we found ourselves you know, under the, the penalty of death. Um, Christ came into the world to deliver us from that. There's no way that we could deliver ourselves. And so for every believer... At one point, you gave up your rebellion, and you accepted Christ as your Savior through faith. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that you didn't have a rebellious nature can, from that point, but it does mean that uh, in, in your decision, your decision, you believed in Christ as your Savior. Uh, associated with this poster child of rebellion is a kingdom and a religion. And both of which we're going to look at. And they reveal to us, again, like I said Sunday, even though we're not going to go through this age, meaning the tribulation, what we learn from them in terms of motivation and why it is we love or should love what we love and hate what we hate, why it is that we should hate sin. I mean, it's all there. And hence, it makes me... um, fairly confident of you know one of the reasons at least why God reveals this so much through the scriptures this brief period of seven years it's talked about and talked about uh, through the prophets in the Old Testament and of course the book of Revelation the whole middle part of it uh, which is chapter 6 through 18 are all about it and um, so that's what we're going to look at today is the apostasy that comes in the tribulation. So let's uh, pray and let's uh, make sure we ask God for, as always, for humility and the eyes and ears to hear and to learn, but also uh, to open up our eyes to the truth of what he'll reveal today, of course. So with that, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, your prophecy, which is an enormous amount of scripture as we understand, Father. And uh, we also know, Father, that we don't understand every aspect of your prophecy. And I mean, even for the experts don't understand it all, but we uh, who would profess not to be experts uh, still have likely a lot of gaps in our understanding. Yet what you reveal in the reason for, the, the main reasons for what will happen and why it will happen are clear. And we will know more and more about that, those reasons as we progress in our learning. So we ask through your spirit that we learn even more today as we study your word and we look into this incredible time that is to come. We thank you, uh, quickly thank you for the gift of our Lord and Savior and the fact that through him being his bride, we will not go through this time. And so we ask, Father, through your spirit for our hearts to be enlightened. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So the apostasy to come in the, the tribulation teaches us about the only things that we should love. And there's a great uh, insight here. Uh, and insight is really a key word when it comes to living. Uh, so when, you know, if I, I need motivation to overcome the temptations that I get. And I, you know, I want to overcome them temptations, those, <laughs> them their temptations. Yes, I want to overcome them. And I'm sure you do too. And especially any believer who has um, been beaten up by sin long enough wants to overcome it. And, uh, you know, we can know what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. Um, and we know this. Uh, you know, we, we also have a, a, a harder time when we're not being looked upon by others, meaning when we're alone. And we know what we're ought to do and what not to do, and, and we know this. And um, but and and we could say, you know, this is bad for me or this is good for me. And then, but <laughs> if you're like me, I, you know, I'm willing to put up with a whole lot of pain for a little bit of pleasure. Um, and and so and I say, well, that's bad for me or that's good for me. All right, I mean, it's motivation, but is it is it ultimately? I found personally, no, it's it's not enough. Not for me. And maybe for some people it is. But And then comes insight into why something on principle is bad or good. And that, which only comes from God. Remember the rich young ruler who said, uh, good teacher, tell me what I must do to, be, to get eternal life. And Jesus' response to him was, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And, uh, you know, we think, what was Jesus saying to the guy, do you recognize me as God? Because if you did, then you would abide by what I said. But, you know, that, that phrase, only God is good. Any human being who's rejected Jesus Christ as Savior or nation that's rejected God, and the one that's highlighted in the Scripture is obviously Israel. In the Old Testament, as a nation that rejected and rebelled against God. Did they go about doing good regardless of... They said, you know, you know, Yahweh, we don't need you. 
But at the same time, we're going to love our neighbor. Let's say they're not going to love God, so they're going to love their neighbor. Are they going to be gracious? Are they going to be kind? Are they going to be self-sacrificial? Uh, are they going to be good? And they never are. Nobody is. Anybody, and you know, we're all fallen, so anybody who rejects God does not go about doing good. On the surface, it may look like it, sure, you know, but... But there's other motivations there. You know, people do good, again, because they ought to. And in society, looks down upon them if they don't. Or they don't get along with people well enough if they behave in a certain way. And uh, the people who are not restrained by that just become criminals. Criminals or addicts or whatever. And, you know, they're not restrained by the norms of society. But the people who are restrained by the norms of society, that is their ultimate reason, reason is... And motivation is either reputation or they want to, you know, make money or they want to have a, you know, some, somewhat of a stable and non-chaotic life. But that motivation is really nothing of, what, of the source of God, which is the only source of good. When we know something is bad or good on principle, especially heavenly principle, it's then that we find motivation and desire so look at second thessalonians 2 i didn't tell you to turn there did i second thessalonians 2 1 and so just a, a quick review of you know what we've seen a little bit is now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of the parousia of our lord jesus christ and our gathering together to him and this language, it looks just like 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul is obviously talking about the rapture. It's likely he's talking about the rapture here, but he's not making a distinction. So we won't either. But it's the, the event that, you know, he's saying to the believers, to the Thessalonians, as regarding our gathering to the Lord, that you, in verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, and that could be the spirit of prophecy or a spiritual gift, or a message or a letter as if from us. In other words, communicated to them somehow to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And this Greek word here means is present, now present. So, somehow the Thessalonians had gotten... And word spread. It's how it is. Somebody gets the idea and they, you know, as that old commercial is, they tell two friends and they tell two friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, people started thinking, well, maybe we're in this time that Paul told us about called the day of the Lord. But Paul's going to tell them, no, they're not. And, you know, uh, one of the things that is evidence to them that they're in this time is that if they know anything about the day of the Lord, and they do, because it's in the first letter in chapter 5, that it's a time of great trouble. And the Thessalonians are being persecuted mightily by their community, by their neighbors and family. And so things are tough enough for Christians at Thessalonica that, you know, this idea that they're in it, what Jesus would tell us are birth pangs, which some think is the church and some think of the first half of the tribulation. But whatever the case may be with the Thessalonians, it's 
you know, we might be in this time. And so you told us, Paul, that before that time came, there'd be this, you know, parousia, this coming of the Lord, and we'd be gathered to him, raptured, caught up. And, uh, you know, we didn't see that. Did we miss it? And now that's more confusion. So they're completely bewildered about what's to come and what's happening now. Now, for us, standing outside of it and 2,000 years later, we can say, well, one of the things you're missing, Thessalonians, is, and they don't have worldwide newspapers or the World Wide Web to find out that, you know, Christians are not being persecuted everywhere. It's, they're isolated pockets. Even throughout the, the pers- when persecution in the Roman Empire got really strong against Christianity, which you know, it wasn't always, it wasn't everywhere. It never was. It would be a little bit here, a pocket here, a pocket there, a pocket there. And uh, so one thing that they should know is that in the day of the Lord, persecution against the saints, the church, will, in my opinion, the church will not be in the tribulation. But against the saints, the believers of the tribulation, it's going to be worldwide. As Jesus said, no one's going to escape this time. And the Thessalonians don't really, maybe they don't know that. Again, you know, their world news is uh, rumor and gossip. <laughs> you know, they don't, actually world news is still rumor and gossip. It's just a lot faster now. So anyway, verse 3. So Paul, Paul's... Um, Solution to this, to help them see, is to give them some chronology of some things to come that are going to happen in the day of the Lord. So he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, and the it here has to refer to the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And another title, the son of destruction. This guy has about 30 titles in the scripture. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So Paul judged it would be clear or help to clear things up to tell them something about the sequence of events in the day of the Lord. First, he says, and it's an exhortation, don't let anybody deceive you. This is clearly in Greek, this is a way of saying exhorting. It's, an ex- it's not a command, it's an exhortation. And then the very next phrase is, if you read this straight out in Greek, it would say, let no man deceive you unless the rebellion comes first. But in Greek, we don't have to repeat the apodosis. Actually, it's the protosis that's left out, whatever the case I'm always mixing up uh, that thing, uh, which is like the if-then statement. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you don't that day, as you see here in your translation, it says it will not come. That's actually not in Greek, but that's fine. Um, it, it's uh, um, understood that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Here's the word for apostasy. It's apostasia. That's where we get our word apostasy. No brainer there. Uh, but it means a revolt or a defection. And actually, in some, this could mean a leaving. 
and uh, some think that Paul here is talking about the rapture, that the rapture comes first. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really fit the context, but it's one of those things that is there a small chance that that's what he meant, maybe. But here in the context, it seems to refer pretty obviously to what is described as, you know, the, as what, the way of the world is at that time. Now, the way of the world is as it is now, you know, in rebellion. The rebellion obviously here is against God. And this rebellion, it comes, as you see here in the bottom, it's used in both ways in literature, in Greek literature, it's used in terms of religious apostasy or rebellion or political. So there's a political rebellion against whoever the powers that be or a religious rebellion. And as we'll see, as we see in this apostasy, it's both. Uh, but the, well, the one they're rebelling against is not a particular government or a particular priesthood. It's against God. And it's a defection or a revolt against God. And, and I, we do mean politically. Because is God in favor of a certain kind of nation? And the answer is yeah. Because he gave rules to Israel. You know, his one client nation, he gave rules on how to act. And there was justice, fairness, freedom, uh, freedom to make money, and even compassion. You know, so is God libertarian? Not exactly. Because libertarian is live and let live, and if, you know, if you crash and burn, that's on your head. Which in Israel, if you crashed and burned, so badly that you became a slave, you were set free after seven years. On the year of Jubilee, if you lost, that you bumbled through life and you lost all your family's property, right? Because they, when they went into the land, everybody got property and it was supposed to stay in their family. God protected the property of the family. So every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, everybody got their property back. They were supposed to. Whether that was executed or not is another question. Um, looking at, just to look at this word quickly, um, the Hebrew equivalent used in the Old Testament, where most of this is revealed, uh, which I'm, I'm just staying away from the book of Revelation just for, for the first part of this, is in Jeremiah 2.19, for our wickedness will correct you, sorry, our, for your own, your own wickedness will correct you and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God and the dread of me is not in you. Really, the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. So the apostasy here is obvious. It's an apostasy, a rebellion against God. Uh, and God warns them. He says, look, as he's warning us today, and, you know, if you or I rebel against God, and I've done it quite a bit, you know, the tribulation doesn't come down on my head. <laughs> and I'm very grateful. But then, it, you know, if I'd done it long enough, and I have, then what I would call a tribulation in my own life, which was discipline, it certainly came. And I look back on that, and I am so eternally grateful for it. Um, 
As God says, there's not one children, child that I have that evades discipline. You all get it because you're all what? Rebellious. You're all sinners. So, um, you know, this apostasy is a forsaking of the Lord your God. This uh, in Second Chronicles 33:19, near the end of this is really close to the end of the entire. Second Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Our English puts the books in a different order, but this is the last one. It's almost the last line. And this King Manasseh, who was the worst, he's pretty much the worst. He sacrificed his son in the fire to worship a false god. I don't mean like, and how ironic is that the difference between what this guy did and what like Abraham did and being willing to offer Isaac to God. This man offered his son to Baal. And and God calls him out on it and, you know, uh, in in the context, just anyway, uh, all his, King Manasseh's sin and all his unfaithfulness, that's that same word. So it's the same word that's used back here is called apostasy. And for Manasseh, it was unfaithfulness to God. And then uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, they were being pressed by the Assyrians from the north. The Assyrians were coming closer and closer and closer. They're in huge trouble. And instead of saying, you know what, we got God, they said, let's go make a deal with Egypt. That was a blunder. God doesn't take kindly to that kind of thing. And so he says this through the prophet Isaiah, Woe to the rebellious children. That same word now, rebellious, declares the Lord, who execute a plan. That was a a treaty with Egypt. Egypt said, oh yeah, we'll we'll help you. They didn't. (laughs) Who execute a plan, but not mine. And an alliance, but not of my spirit. In order to add sin to sin. So... In that case, the rebellion is depending on anything other than God for your deliverance from anything. So, by reference, by the reference, sorry, by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 3 is a worldwide rebellion against divine authority at the end of the age. It's both political and religious. In that day, the rebellion of the world will be against any manner of government that that provides freedom, uh, like our government provides still, because they're forced to, thanks to that wonderful document called the Constitution, uh, longest-lasting constitution in the history of mankind um, by far. And it, you know, it, it provides the protection to the, the preamble in the Declaration of Independence that is or the preface, I should say, to the, to the Declaration of Independence, that the government protects our freedom uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In, in the tribulation, uh, no, you don't get any of that. Nobody does. Nobody does. And see, that's why this pinnacle happens when this one man, who's a pawn puppet of Satan, who's empowered by Satan, has full control of the world. And in that full control, there isn't one place where he allows freedom. People to have representation that is fair. He doesn't allow that. So it's the epitome. Now, has such places in pockets throughout history been? Of course. I mean, if you're in the gulag under Satan, Satan, yeah, 
Stalin, who's uh, probably uh, indwelt by him, I don't know, but one of the evilest characters in all of history. Uh, you know, it's going to feel like that, that you're under tribulation. And, um, you know, the most famous guy was in those gulags. That's why I think of it, because I actually ended up reading his book some years ago, is Solzhenitsyn, and uh, he found Christ in that gulag. He thanked God for the gulags. And a lot of people are going to find Christ in the tribulation, a lot. But it's, so the whole point of this is not so much how evil this man is or how evil those people are. It's not, because the wrath of God is, that that's what this time is about. This time is about the wrath of God on, finally, publicly, worldwide, upon sin which comes from rebellion. And it only lasts a short time, because as Jesus said, if it didn't, everybody would die. That's how bad this is. It's got the restraint. There's, as Second Thessalonians will tell us, there's a restrainer on the earth now. We think it's the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say specifically, so it doesn't matter. But it's probably the Holy Spirit, what he refers to, in that he is restraining things. But when the restraint is lifted off, God is going to allow people to believe, as they do now. They can believe what they want, but they're restrained in what they can do with that. And in that time, God is going to pour out his wrath like those bowls of judgment in the book of Revelation. And is it about, you know, how bad the ruler is or how bad the false prophet is or how bad the rules are? Technically, no. It's about what has brought on the wrath of God amongst mankind. And that message is only going to be heard by those who believe in him. Because the unbelievers just blow this off. Oh, it's like that. I finally finished that book on the Johnstone flood. And they, you know, at the end, Dave McCullough, who writes this book, says, you know, all the people in Johnstown who got flooded like crazy, 2,000 people died. They all knew about that dam for years. They knew it was dangerous. They could have had the mayor and the city council go up there and say, hey, we demand that you fix this dam. They knew it was in bad shape. They were just like, well, put it off next election, you know. Let's put it off till next week. And you think just because it hadn't happened now, it's never going to happen. But that is the mindset of the world. If the tribulation has this thing that Christians have been telling us about, and so Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, that you know, because God is patient, people think it's never going to come. This is not anything. We wouldn't want our worst enemies to go through this. So the rebellion will be political, no freedom. The rebellion will also be religious. Uh, it's against Christ and specifically Jewish believers. Jewish, Jewish people, we say they become Christian. Now, there's no church there, but if you're a believer in Christ in the tribulation, I would call you a Christian. The false religion is the worship of the beast. We find out that it's highly immoral. A religion that is highly immoral and persecutes the saints of the age. It says that this uh, 
this woman, this harlot in Revelation 17 who's riding this scarlet beast. If you know this image, she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Ironically, during this time, the religious organization, there is an organization, they rebel against the beast, it seems. Because it says in Revelation 17:17 that the beast hates the woman on the scarlet beast. <laughs> and so you're thinking, wait a minute, which beast is this? I know it's so it's at the book of Revelation make your head spin, but there, there's definitely an indication there that the uh, the beast makes war against his religious establishment, and it would seem that they rebel against him. And you know that kind of makes sense. And what evil kingdom has all, even the leadership, all been like, yeah, we all do evil really good together? You know what I mean? Like, we all get along. <laughs> they don't, because they're evil. They bite and devour one another. So ironically delicious, I guess. The apostasy now. What we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 is we have the definite article on apostasy. It's not just any apostasy. It's the apostasy. And by writing it this way, we would assume that Paul had already taught them of this particular apostasy of the day of the Lord. That comes during the day of the Lord. Uh, so closely associated with this is who we just read of is the man of sin. He is the greatest of all rebels. Uh, he's the he's just, he's the poster child. This is the poster child that God holds up. The man of sin. And we you know we shake our head at him and how evil Satan is and all of that. There's a reason why God is holding this guy up. He's saying all of you are in danger of being like him. All of us because we're all sinners. It, it, his kingdom is made of pride. Uh, his the happiness in his kingdom is made of lust. The uh, hope of his kingdom is wealth, riches, and all promised. You know, hardly anybody gets it, but meaning gets the wealth. It's it's very much like any um, you know uh, tyrannical kingdom uh, in the in the history of the world. Very there's an oligarchy who has all the money, and the rest of the people are dirt poor. Uh, we see this described for us in Revelation that the most majority of the people are poor and enslaved, hungry, while there's this elite rich who are enjoying all of this, and they also think that it's never going to end. Uh, if you read, uh, there's a, a wonderful kind of makes you makes you proud to be a believer in Revelation 18, where Babylon, this city which is the center, the economic and religious center of that time, of the tribulation. Uh, there's no more gold, silver, everything's gone. And all the people weep over that nation. There's no more singing, there's no more fun, there's, no, there's nothing. It's all gone. And the people are there like, what happened? And they're all weeping and crying and wailing, what happened to Babylon? And in the very next scene after that are the first hallelujahs in heaven. In Revelation 19, there are four of them. And that fourth hallelujah is us with our Lord at the wedding feast. We're singing. We're singing greatly. <laughs> We're in heaven with our Lord getting married while Babylon on the earth is weeping. 
Um, so, yeah, this man of lawlessness, this is him. He's the pinnacle of God's rebellion against, of man's rebellion against God, sorry, as God holds him up. And, and, and he's holding him up throughout his scripture, really, multiple places, that this is where rebellion against me can take you to. And if he's the top of the mountain, then what God is kind of saying to us, do you, do you want to be on any part of this mountain? Do you, you, know, do you want a little bit of rebellion? If this is what rebellion is, and God says this is what it is, he's, and, and how God's wrath and judgment comes upon that, and that alone. Right? It's not rebellion against creatures. It's rebellion against sin. It's a rebellion against sinful creatures. It's rebellion against their pride. Or sorry, uh, wrath, I should say. It's wrath of God against their pride and against their apostasy, which is rebellion. And God holds this up to us and says, Now look, my child, I've given you life. Yeah, in a way, it kind of reminds me of uh, what my stepdaughter years ago uh, was really doing poorly in school. And, and the poor girl. She lost both her parents. Uh, her mom died just some years before. Her dad died years before that. And she, I mean, I understood. But I tried a, a few ways to try and get through to her. And one time I had this brilliant idea. And I drove her to like one of the worst neighborhoods I knew in downtown Providence. And I was like, this is where you're going to live if you don't get your act together. And uh, <laughs> she told me later on she thought I was going to kick her out of the car and leave her there. I was like, no, I wasn't going to do that. But then I thought, well, that would have been definitely a teaching tool, but a cruel one. I wouldn't have done that. But, you know, that's that showing, you know, what it's like. I remember they, there was a scared straight thing they did when we were kids that was pretty popular. And they brought the kids all into the prison and, and had the inmates deal with them. Which, uh, and that's kind of what this is. You know, but in a, in a way, a, a gracious way of God saying, I'm not going to pour my wrath out on you. No matter how rebellious you get against me, if you're my child as a believer, you will always be forgiven by me. I'll discipline you and it'll hurt. But what I don't want you to do, I don't want to spend my your whole life being disciplined by me. What I want you to do is get it. And when you get it, in other words, you see good not just in terms of it's good for me, which it is, but that it's good in principle. The principle that God is that is purely good. There's a reason to be gracious. No matter what you get for it. You may get nothing. You may lose everything, like our Lord did. His graciousness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's That's where he ended up. Um, you know, serving others, being kind, losing yourself, losing your selfishness. God, can you imagine? <laughs> I think, you know, I, you, anyway, I'll, I'll move on from that. But it, uh, all of us, no matter how much you think you've overcome, the amount, you know, think about all the things that you're supposed to do that you don't do. Thoughts that you're supposed to have that you don't have. 
just one thought for a second. If it's wrong, it's a sin, is it not? I mean, you and, you and I could be committing thousands of these a day. Who knows? Maybe more. I don't know. Because I think for the most part, we don't know, we don't know them. Hence, Jesus would say, pray every day, forgive us for our, our debts. Or in, in Luke's account, trespasses. Um, because we are. But in, and, so, and we talked about this. The antinomian way is to say, well, if I'm covered in sin already, what's a little bit more? And Paul taught us this. He said, don't continue in sin so that grace may increase. No. You know, we, God, though we're sinners, we're forgiven, and we get to reach ahead for that which we've been called and experience it despite being sinners because we're cleansed. You know, you can make mistakes and still walk in holiness. Put that thought in your head for a while. <laughs> you know, my Lordship Salvation friends would be like, oh, you can't, that's not true. And they only say that because of an agenda they have, in my opinion. But, moving on. God has done all of this in order to show man, what mankind, his kingdoms, and his worship are without God. Because with this principle of the tribulation, it's not really about any one person besides this beast, but he's nothing if people don't follow him. Satan can't force people to follow him. That's one of his frustrations. I think he, I know, he has a hard time getting unbelievers to follow him to do what he wants. And so it's a bigger thing that God is showing us here. He's showing us a nation, a religion that a lot of people are involved in. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13:15, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, this one who gives breath to the image. Now, he's not giving breath to the beast. He's giving breath to the image. This is a statue an idol of the beast that he has put in the in the temple in the holy of holies and and this uh this one who's given him breath is the second beast or the false prophet as he's titled um and so here my point is besides getting into all that detail and we we will as we progress a little bit as we spend some time on this I want you at first to get the big principles because you, with, with eschatology you can get caught up in the weeds of the details and who's this and what does this represent because there's so much imagery and you can get caught up in that and you miss it. You miss the whole thing. <laughs> and you don't want to do that. The, the principle is here first is that if you don't worship the beast, you're put to death. All right, that's first. Verse 16, and he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves, who's excluded? Nobody to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he, so what's the mark? Don't worry about it. 
Is it the chip? Is it the tattoo? Is it now it's AI? It's every single technology that comes on the market is the new is the new mark. <laughs> uh, leave it. Who cares what it is? Unless God tells us. And next we'll figure out what 666 means. I will not. And they give the mark on their right hand or their forehead and he provides that. Now here's the point. Forget about what the mark is. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name, which is 666. So this false prophet, this is the beast's right-hand man. This is his number two. And he is a number two, by the way. That's a poop joke from the pulpit. But anyway, uh, he is given the authority that if you don't worship the beast, you will be killed. And if you don't worship the beast, if you don't, whatever the mark is, if you don't get it, you will not have the freedom to buy or sell. It will starve you out. And so not no freedom to buy or sell and capital punishment for an innocent, that means no government. There's a government, but it's not fair. So what is, what is revealed here by God Besides the details, what's revealed by God is a kingdom of that man has put together. Now, it's the beast, yes, and he's empowered by Satan, and this false prophet is empowered by Satan. But if the people don't follow, we read in the Scripture that they're all on board. They all follow. They don't rebel. Themselves, they should rebel against this, but they don't. And they pay the consequences. This is the kingdom of man without God. This is it, poster child kingdom, poster kingdom without God. Now, these have been tried, right? This sounds a lot like Russia in the 30s through 70s, right? A long time. China, even now other kingdoms in the past, but they all crumble and fall, as this one will too. But here's the difference. Those are isolated. This kingdom is worldwide. It's all over the place. No one escapes it. All rich, poor, doesn't matter. You have to have that mark. So as we see here, and as we'll continue to see, as we highlight this, is that all of this is a false representation of God. And not only is this a kingdom without God, but it's professed to be of God. In fact, there's a false trinity here. There's Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. They make a three. Uh, the, the Satan, uh, the beast is a fake Christ. Satan is a fake father, God the Father. And the false prophet is a fake Elijah. He's really a fake John the Baptist because he's, he's the one who leads others into the worship of the beast. This unholy trinity, it's a fake. In fact, as uh, we, we read in Daniel, the beast makes a treaty with Israel and the false prophet has signs and wonders and they fool 
the unbelievers in Israel fool them into thinking that this is the promised Messiah and the promised Elijah. Right? Elijah's supposed to return, right? That, and he is going to return. In chapter 11, he returns. Uh, oh, that's a great story there. He's just such a thorn in Satan's side. No, they try to kill him and nobody can kill him. Him and we think it's Moses. Uh, sitting there right in the temple, just... Anyway, this is great. But anyway, the, the, the premise here, the, the main principle, is that ironically, man without God tries to duplicate the things of God. He tries to make a kingdom. I mean, where do kingdoms come from? They're, they're God's. Why does there have to be a kingdom? Why can't they all just go and do what the heck they want to do? Why do we need a ruler ruling over everybody? I mean, I'm assuming that Satan could make the beast as rich and beyond his wildest dreams. Why do they want to keep ruling everybody? Think of it in our age. Why do the rich, uber rich, why don't they just, so many of them, take their riches and go home and leave us alone? But they don't. They want more and they get, they, once they've had enough money, they want power. It's on and on and on. They want it. They want, and power's not a bad thing. Power is something that is good in the hands of God. It's good. Yeah. So Satan rebelled against God, fooled Adam and Eve to do the same. Mankind, made in the image of God, has rebelled against God. And we seek independence from God, all mankind does. And while individual tragedies around the world, the history of mankind, are extant, you know, tons and tons of stories, one after another, of individuals who have rebelled against God and have met their end in great tragedy. What God is holding up here in his scripture in the end times is a nation, is a group of people, a rebellious kingdom, and a rebellious religious system. The religious system is the worship of the beast. So idolatry comes back. Uh, well, not, it's always been, but it comes back here. Um, so, let's go to Matthew 23. Now, as I said... Um, there's never been a people without God who have gone about doing good anyway. Unless we have God. And this is why I um, have been kind of emphasizing lately that what we're in the pursuit of as believers is the presence of God in our lives. Because... I take it here first. That look at uh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jesus says this much better than I could. This is when he approaches Jerusalem. This is when he's on the back of the colt. This is his la- This is triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they're all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying out the palms and the carpets out in front of his donkey as he rides. And he comes to a crest right around the corner of the Mount of Olives, which would look right over Jerusalem, over the temple complex. 
And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. What have I wanted to do is gone is to just gather you to myself. What is that? It's the presence of God. And say, you know, I always wanted to make you rich and famous. And, you know, that all, in, in fact, was somewhat included in this. But that wasn't the point. There are plenty of times in Israel's history where they had gobs of money and they rejected God because God decided to bless for whatever reason or allow to be blessed for whatever reason. But this is, you know, if you're pursuing happiness, if you, if you really want God's joy, God's contentment, if, and I, I don't mean just any contentment, I mean God's. If you want God's peace and God's love in your life, the way to get it is to be in His presence. And to therefore pursue that which is good, not only because it's good for you. If you stop there, your motivation is not enough to carry you all the way. It is Why would you pursue good? It's because that's where God is. That's where I want to go. I want Him. I want to be next to Him. I want to be in His sphere. I want to be in His kingdom. I want to be in His way. That's what Jesus says here. All I want to do is gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Just to be with me. What are we doing for all of eternity? Besides floating around playing our harps, blowing our little trumpets. I don't care what we're doing. We're going to be in His presence. That's what matters. Do you know you can have that now? You and I can have that now. And there's there's a lot to unravel in our sinful little minds and how to find that path. First to get on the path and stay on it. But we all we all know pretty easily how to get on the path. I mean it's it's um after your salvation, it's you know, through either confession, because we're all blundering along. If we have to pick ourselves up and follow the right path, learn His Word. But there's a way to find, to stay on it. To find in principle that that is the only path to be on. In this tribulational period with its false uh, Jesus, its false Christ, its false prophet, and Satan and its kingdom and its religious system all show us why it's wrong. Now, it's wrong in principle. It doesn't matter. Millions and millions are going to be murdered and killed, but everybody dies anyway. Like, we all die. You know, if you died of cancer at whatever age, or you died of Jesus coming back and throw up, thrusting his sword through your head, you know, you died. <laughs> it's really not death that's the issue. It's the manner of it. You know, or, or what, have, what have you done? You were, so here, here's, um, I mean, really, in these few verses, this lamentation by our Lord is the summary of all human history here. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Jerusalem's God's city. Always has been. Well, since, since uh, they took the promised land. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. That's the problem with history. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, symbolically and rightly, as soon as Jesus says this in 24.1, you can read it there. Where does Jesus go? He leaves the temple. And he leaves it for the last time. He's not coming back. Jesus, he says, look, your house, which doesn't just refer to the temple, it refers to the city and the nation, it's going to be left to, it is being left to you desolate. And right after he says that, he leaves it. Well, after he says this next part, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a couple of things here. And I think I'll start with this tomorrow because this passage is, is key to what we're trying to learn in Second Thessalonians. The people of Israel had a a tabernacle and then a temple that Solomon had built. And then that got destroyed. Solomon's temple got destroyed. The captivity, they came back and rebuilt the temple. The Ark of the Covenant never, never made it back after the captivity. But it was believed anyway that the even though the, the Ark of the Covenant was not in the Holy of Holies in Zerubbabel's temple, the, the last temple, uh, that the, the Shekinah glory, that's a term, a Hebrew term for the presence of God, was in the Holy of Holies. They believed this. And certainly before the captivity it was when the ark was in there, and where did God dwell when the ark was in there, either in the tabernacle or the temple, in the Holy of Holies, but on the mercy seat, which was under the wings of the cherubim. And notice what Jesus says here, I wanted to gather you under my wings, right? In my righteousness that I earned for you. See, on the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled on it. And that's here. The symbolism is so stark. It's so amazing that he says, look, this is where I wanted to bring you. Not based on your righteousness, no. But on my blood, in which I have died for you, that's where I wanted to bring you. And the problem, this is all of history. And the problem is, you were unwilling. I mean, if there's a verse that shows the free will of man in either accepting or rejecting God, and not hyper-Calvinism, which you just picked regardless. This is it. No other way to translate it. You are unwilling. And Jesus said, look, because you are unwilling, my nation... right? So, the, the Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle, in the holy place. And whether it was there or not, after the captivity... It doesn't actually matter when Jesus arrives in his first advent. He goes when he goes into the temple. The Shekinah glory is in the temple because he is the Shekinah glory. 
He is God. The presence of God was again in the temple. And this was God Himself. He performed miracles in the temple. He healed in the temple. He taught in the temple. His presence was in the temple. And when He arrived the last day on the back of the cult, he, that's when He truly announced Himself, I'm the Messiah. In the temple. And the people of the temple said, crucify Him. So what does He say to them? I leave your house desolate. And He walks away. And He doesn't come back. Now the next ruler to enter the temple. It's not that that temple is destroyed. But there will be another one during the tribulation. And who's going to enter that temple and set himself up as God? The abomination of desolation. See, Jesus says, I'm going to leave it desolate. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. And the next person to come and be in this temple is the beast, or the image of the beast, the beast himself. And what is he going to do for you, Israel? What I did for you is die for you, to call you to myself through my blood. What's he going to do for you? Try and kill you. Every last stinking one of you, he's going to try and kill you. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Now we're like, wow, what an epic. And it is, it's absolutely epic. But in this last line, he says, now, for the very people who killed him, for the very people who rejected him, the very people whose temple that he owned and built, walked away from. He said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, right? He says to them, I will, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will. At the end of the tribulation. So, 